Let me pray for us before we consider further this passage of Scripture together. Lord God, uh, as we reflect on this passage of Scripture together this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds through it. Uh, Help us to continue on this journey, we pray, of in John's Gospel of being uh, in some way more deeply struck by the wonder of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us in coming to this earth. Amen. I've got a bit of a confession to make this morning. Uh, Sometimes when I get something new, I find it very hard to throw out the old thing it's replacing. I'm one of those people who basically thinks, well, it's such a shame to throw out the old thing. I mean, surely it'll come in useful at some point, and maybe I'll just put it in the corner of the room. Uh, It's very hard sometimes to throw out the old when we get something new. But indeed, when we get something new, it is a wonderful blessing. But what do we do with the old? Uh, When Jesus came into this world, he came to make everything new. Uh, He came, of course, to give us a new way to God. He came ultimately and will one day renew the whole of the creation. And what we see with Jesus is this. He brings the new, but at the same time, it is out with the old. He brings the new, but the old cannot stay. Uh, In the time of Jesus, uh, not everyone was so excited about Jesus bringing the new. Uh, Some people were very interested and had vested interests in the old. And so therefore, sadly and tragically, many people in Jesus' day opposed him and rejected him. And of course we see that uh, already and we will continue to see it in John's Gospel. Tragically, his own people to whom he came uh, reject him and recognize him not. A brief overview of where we're going in terms of the next uh, few sermons. Uh, An overview of chapters 2 to 12. Uh, In chapters 2 to 12, we're going to see that the author John gives us seven miracles of Jesus, uh, what he calls signs. And these signs have an important function. Uh, They reveal something to us about who Jesus is. Uh, As we saw in chapter 2 at the end, they reveal something of his glory. Uh, They also reveal something of why he has come, uh, the age of salvation which he brings. And so, uh, in this passage of John's Gospel today, we're going to see two new ways in which Jesus brings something new. And they occur firstly at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, and then the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. Two new things that Jesus brings. Now then, last week, if you were with us, we saw at the end of chapter 1, Jesus called his first disciples... Uh, now Andrew, uh, John, Peter, and Philip. And a few days later, we now see that they uh, are invited, along with Jesus, to a wedding celebration. But there is, of course, a bit of a domestic disaster. At the wedding reception, they run out of wine. Uh, Jesus' mum seems to be one of the wedding organizers, and she brings the situation to Jesus' attention. However, strangely, uh, he doesn't seem to want to get involved. Uh, look again at verse 4. Uh, Dear woman, he says, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Uh, That's a bit odd, isn't it? Uh, What does Jesus mean, his time has not yet come? Uh, Why should that stop him from fixing this wine shortage? Now, as we work our way through John's gospel, uh, we're going to see this term, that Jesus' time or his hour, recurring time and time again. And as we progress through John's gospel, we'll see actually that it refers to the hour of his death on the cross. 
So, uh, what does Jesus mean then? Well, Jesus doesn't want to do a miracle because his time to die has not yet come. Because every time that Jesus does a miracle, it reveals something of who he is, but in response to that revelation, many reject him. And of course, that rejection culminates ultimately in his death. And so there's a sense in which Jesus knows it's not yet time for him to go to the cross. And therefore, he doesn't want to start off doing miracles in a public setting just yet. So, uh, what he does in effect is he decides he will do a miracle, but do it quite discreetly. So, uh, Jesus' mum, she seems to think that he's going to work something out, and so she tells the servants, look, uh, just listen to what he tells you and do whatever he tells you to do. Uh, What he actually tells them to do would have been somewhat bizarre, of course, to those bemused servants. Uh, There are these massive water jars uh, in the corner, uh, and John tells us specifically what they're for, uh, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, uh, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. A bit of background. Uh, The Jews of the day had invented all kinds of rules about uh, when they needed to wash. Uh, This wasn't just for the personal hygiene. Uh, It was actually a ceremonial thing. It didn't come directly from the Old Testament, but it was something which um, they'd added in over time to their traditions. And for many Jews, it was the way they thought they could actually cleanse themselves before God. So, you see, Jesus gets these servants at the wedding to fill these water jars used for ceremonial washing. And then, of course, uh, he turns the water into wine, uh, probably into 600 liters of what turns out to be a limited edition classic vintage. Uh, Not knowing what's happened, uh, the catering manager tastes it and exclaims in verse 10, everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Uh, You see, this is no clean skin. Uh, This is a prime time Penfolds Grange, if not better. And the Apostle John then gives us an editorial comment. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, again, this seems somewhat strange, don't you think? Uh, Why would turning water into wine at a wedding be so significant? I mean, let's think about it. It's a great party trick to have up your sleeve, but why would John put this as the first of the seven signs which Jesus did? Uh, How does turning water into wine reveal the glory of Jesus? Uh, How does providing maybe slightly tipsy wedding guests with even more wine to consume, how does that enable Jesus' disciples to put their faith in him? Uh, The key to understanding this it comes when we see a little more detail as to what happens in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a little more nuanced than what we said in the kids' talk. Clearly, Jesus' performing of the miracle does reveal that he's the Son of God, but there is more to it than that. 
Now, in a number of places in the Old Testament, uh, the image of wine is used in a symbolic way. It's used to symbolize the joy and the bounty of God's new promised era. This is when God, God's Messiah comes, uh, when God transforms the creation into all it was supposed to be. Uh, for example, Isaiah 25, uh, look at verse 6 onwards. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. So, many hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah makes this prophecy. And it's looking ahead to the time when God will intervene in world affairs in a way which will transform everything, even to the point of banishing death and all suffering from the creation. And that day is pictured as a day of great celebration for God's people. There will be a party, a feast, when there will be the finest of foods and the finest of wines. And so, here we have Jesus producing the finest of wine. You see what he's saying? The start of this new era has come with me. I am the one who will bring about this bounteous celebration of God's people. I am the one who will ultimately bring God's people to the day when this creation will be cleansed of even the shroud of death and it will be a day of great rejoicing. And Jesus says, I'm kicking off the process now by doing and performing this sign. But Jesus is saying he's bringing something new, but he's not just saying he's bringing something new. He's also saying that we have to then get rid of the old. <clears throat> Jesus is saying effectively, uh, it's not a coincidence that he uses these large jars used for ceremonial washing because he's saying, in effect, these are the things which have to go. These are the old. What he's saying is this, uh, you cannot save yourself by relying on your tradition, but on me alone. It's either one or the other. Uh, we've already seen this theme of Jesus in some way uh, fulfilling the Old Testament law and everything the Old Testament pointed to in chapter one. In verse 17, for example, chapter one, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus brings the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament points to. You see, with Jesus, it isn't just in with the new, it's out with the old and in with the new. And of course, that doesn't please everyone. In the next scene, uh, we move forward in time. Uh, it's nearly the Passover. Uh, this, of course, was the festival when the Jews celebrated God's miraculous deliverance of their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. And it was a festival they celebrated every year, and it required Jews to travel from all over uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, so, uh, in accordance with the Old Testament law, Jesus himself heads up to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he goes to the temple, and he gets to one of the outer courts, to the place known as the Court of the Gentiles. 
but in this outer court of the temple, uh, there is no room for the Gentiles. Why? Because the temple authorities have turned it into a convenience store. It's become a market. Now, a bit of more background. Under Jewish law, the people had to bring a, a sacrifice to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. But of course, if you're going on a long journey, you don't want to have to carry your sacrifice all the way to Jerusalem. So what do you do? The creative solution is this. Uh, the temple authorities allow people to buy animals on site to sacrifice in the temple. Uh, that way you could just travel with the cash in your pocket and you could buy one when you got there. Uh, another piece of background. Under the Jewish law, the people had to pay a temple tax when they got to the temple. Uh, but here again, the temple authorities insisted that it could only be paid in a particular currency. It was actually uh, a Tyrian, what's called a Tyrian starter. Uh, apparently, these coins had a high silver content. And so the authorities also set up these money-changing booths. And here, people could exchange their local currency for this particular currency to pay their tax. So back to Jesus. He gets the temple. He sees the chaos, he hears the noise, and he is incensed. The people, how are the people supposed to worship God in this place? With this bustling noise, this is more like a market than a temple. And so, of course, he takes drastic action. Look at verse 15. So he made a whip out of, the cord, out of cords and drove all from the temple area both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and the money changers and he overturned their temples. Well, so much for Jesus being meek and mild. Uh, this does not seem to be a very meek and mild Jesus. Uh, Jesus' disciples, uh, they remember something from the Old Testament. Uh, they remember that this is the sort of thing that King David himself talked about in one of the Psalms. Uh, it's actually Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69, David talks about how lots of people hated and persecuted him because of his zeal for God's house. And Jesus' disciples now make the connection. Look at verse 17. Uh, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. They're making the connection. Jesus has a similar zeal to King David. Uh, Jesus is a king like David who has a zeal for God's glory. And Jesus' cleansing of the temple, it was entirely in line with what people should have expected because the Old Testament actually predicted that when the Messiah came, he would do exactly that. Uh, look at Malachi 3. Uh, in Malachi 3, we see both, interestingly, the prediction of the one who would come before Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, but also Jesus' cleansing of the temple. At Malachi 3, verse 1. This is what the prophet says, looking ahead to this future day. Uh, See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a laundress's soap. He will sit as a refiner and, pure, and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites 
and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. There it was. It was all predicted. Uh, The Messiah would cleanse the temple worship. He would move people to a true worship of the living God. Uh, Back to the temple. Uh, The religious authorities, uh, they're not very impressed with Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Uh, Like what happened with King David, uh, they go on the attack, this time with King Jesus. Uh, They demand that Jesus gives them some kind of miraculous sign. Uh, They want him to prove his authority to do what he's done. It's interesting that they don't question what he's done, but they want him to prove his authority for what he has done. So, uh, Jesus offers them a sign. Uh, It's a fascinating sign, but it has a deep meaning. Uh, He tells them, of course, to destroy the temple, and he says in three days he will rebuild it. Uh, They think he's being absurd. Uh, They're still thinking, of course, in terms of the temple building in Jerusalem. But later on, Jesus' disciples understand what he actually meant. Verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. In due course, the religious authorities would kill the king. In due course, the religious authorities would push Jesus to his death. But three days later, he would rise again from the dead. Uh, now we know, of course, the, the function of the, the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, it was the place where God dwelt on earth with his people. And it was the place where God's people could gain access to God. But we also now know from this introduction to John's Gospel that in Jesus, God has become flesh. The word has literally tabernacled amongst his people. And so now we're seeing that things are changing Uh, Jesus is now the place where God dwells on earth with his people. Jesus is now the way that people can come into God's presence and gain access to him. And of course, remember what happens at the death of Jesus on the cross. The moment he dies, what happens in the temple in Jerusalem? The huge curtain which separated the inner holy of holies from the outer courts is ripped supernaturally in two from top to bottom. Access to God is now open to the death of Jesus. And so here is the deeper meaning. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is bringing something entirely new. Jesus is the place that people will now meet God. He is the place where people will have access to God. But of course, it's not just in with the new, it is also out with the old. There is now no longer a need for the temple building in Jerusalem because Jesus with his coming replaces it. Now again, uh, this does not please everyone, especially those people who had vested interest in the old. Uh, In the last section of chapter two, uh, John tells us that Jesus went on to do uh, many other miraculous signs there in Jerusalem. 
Uh, he doesn't tell us all the nature of those, but he tells us, nevertheless, he did other signs. And what we see is that uh, some people, quote-unquote, believed in Jesus because of these signs. But it seems there was something inadequate about their faith. Uh, we're told that Jesus knew their hearts, and he didn't trust them. Uh, we'll see more of this when we meet Nicodemus next week. Jesus is in some way looking at the people's hearts and he sees that not all is well in the hearts of these people who are supposedly putting their faith in him. And look again at verse 23. Uh, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, uh, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Uh, what is going on here? The point is this. Uh, Jesus is not misled by people's outward profession of loyalty to him. Uh, Jesus can see that it, their loyalty is shallow. It is, if you like, just a miracles-based faith. These people are attracted to Jesus' power to solve problems, but they're not drawn to the path of costly discipleship. They're comfortable with him being a king of their convenience, but not a king over their lives. These people shy away from true heartfelt repentance and a wholehearted commitment to this new Messiah figure. So as we draw it all together, uh, in summary, what do we see here in John chapter 2? Uh, we've seen firstly that Jesus turns the water into wine. Uh, it's out with the ceremonial water of first century Jewish tradition. And it's in with the new age of the Messiah and the salvation he brings. We've seen secondly, Jesus clears the temple. It's out with the Old Testament temple. And Jesus is now the new temple. Uh, Jesus will be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus will be the way that only people can come to the Father, and there will be no other way. Uh, of course, this is great news. Uh, it is an incredible salvation that Jesus brings. It's a new start. Uh, the past can be forgiven. A new way to God is opened up, and he gives new purpose and new hope to people. And of course, we know that eventually when he returns, he will bring a new restored creation. And on that day, we will rejoice in God's presence. A bountiful celebration will occur because then all of the sadness, all of the grief of this present life will have been removed forever. On that day, Jesus will bring about the mother of all parties, the wedding celebration of the Lamb, the joyful celebration of life in the new creation. So you see, with Jesus, it's in with the new and it's out with the old. So it's in with the new and it's not just in with the new. It is out with the old. And what that means is this. There are no other paths to God. If Jesus is our savior, then that puts an end to any other form of salvation. It means that we cannot wash ourselves clean before God in any other way. Uh, it's not just Jewish ceremonial washing that is finished. It's any way we think we can cleanse ourselves before God. 
It's any good works we think we can do which will in some way change our standing with God. Any traditions, any pedigree which will influence our position before God. Uh, Jesus isn't just some kind of supplement to our, our schemes to save ourselves. If we want the new, it has to be out with the old. So if Jesus is the only way to God, that puts an end to any other path to God. And it's not just the Jewish temple has to go. It's any other religion, it's any other path that claims to get people to God. Often we see, of course, in our society this claim that there are many paths to God. Uh, that is the, the voice of relativism. Uh, it's something which people are comfortable living with. They're not comfortable with saying one path is right and the others are wrong. But what we see is Jesus says, no, there is only one path to God and I am it. It's not just in with the new, it is out with the old and in with the new. Jesus brings the new. And sometimes that is painful. Uh, sometimes that is costly. It can, be, it can be a big cost to become a Christian and then to continue to follow Christ. Uh, it can be costly to forsake the previous ways of trying to get right with God, but then to move to trusting in Jesus. Uh, you will know, of course, of people who come to faith in, uh, in a Muslim society. Uh, the cost of a Muslim converting to Christianity is incredibly high. Uh, often they are rejected by their family. And sometimes even their lives are taken from them in the, what is called honor killings. Because in so doing, Muslims who convert to Christ, their families see them as bringing shame on their families. The cost can be very, very high. So when we come to Christ, we put aside the old. We embrace the new. And it doesn't get any easier once we become a Christian. In fact, some ways, uh, and sometimes it becomes harder. Uh, the longer we serve as a Christian, uh, the more we give up. Uh, the harder we work in the service of the Lord. And I think when we do that, there is a danger which then presents itself. The more that we serve God and in a costly way, the danger is that we start to have a sense of entitlement. There is a danger that we start to become inclined to rely on what we've done rather than on what Jesus has done for us. Uh, the more that we serve in costly service, the harder it may be to rely on God's grace alone. Uh, maybe it's a bit like the parable of the prodigal son. Remember the older son who never leaves home. He stays at home and he serves his father. His word is he slaves for his father. And maybe for some of us who've been Christians for a long time, we have stayed at home. Uh, we've heard, worked hard in the service of our Lord. But it is easy, is it not, to become a bit like the older brother in the parable we start to feel a sense of entitlement because of our service and our sacrifice. We can start, if we're not careful, to feel we've earned our place with the Father. And therefore, of course, it is wonderful for all of us to do that spiritual reality check 
uh, to look again at our hearts and to say, am I truly trusting in grace alone for my salvation? Am I truly marveling in that? Or has that, the glory of that become somewhat dim in my heart? It is worth us looking again and focusing again afresh on the new thing that Jesus has done and remembering it is only in Jesus alone that we can be made right with God. Jesus is the new temple. He is the sole means of accessing God. Jesus is the Messiah who will bring us to the wedding feast of the Lamb on that final day when he returns. Shall we pray? Lord God, uh, we thank you for the sending of Jesus, uh, the one who brings in this new era of salvation, uh, the one who will ultimately bring us when we put our faith in him to that wedding feast of the Lamb on the day he returns to restore all things. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, the one who fulfills the purpose of the temple, the one who is the ultimate temple, the place where we can meet you. We pray, therefore, that each of us here would be putting our faith in Jesus uh, to put us right in your presence and we would be trusting in him alone and nothing else and that we would continue then to serve you uh, with joy, joyful hearts but never straying from that path of recognizing this humble service is merely a gift of gratitude from our hearts and never earns us uh, our standing in your presence. Amen.